I invite you to open up to our scripture passage today. We're continuing on in the book of Exodus through our series, and uh, we're looking at Exodus 11.1 through 12.13. So Exodus 11.1 to 12.13. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die uh, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of a female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males, without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. Then all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some blood, some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses when they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. We pray as we wrestle with this passage that uh, is one that is probably seared into most of our memories from an early age of just the destruction and even horror and power of what happens here. Father, we pray that we would understand your word rightly. We pray that we would see your justice and mercy. We pray that your spirit would be alive in each one of us, building us up and making us anew, 
giving us Christ, because that is our only hope. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm sure every one of you knows that phrase, uh, which I was kind of getting the kids to demonstrate, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I've basically always assumed that, or believed that phrase was, you know, a way to encourage someone towards self-advancement, right? Like you tell people, hey, the only way you're going to get ahead in life is if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? It's the idea that other people aren't looking out for you, other people aren't going to help you out, you've got to make that effort. Now, while I believe that's kind of how people use it, and I think they do use it today, it never made sense to me, right? Like, and probably didn't make sense to you either, right? Like, how can you actually lift yourself up by grabbing your own boots? It, it just seems like an exercise in futility and frustration. And so I assumed, well, probably back in the day, whenever this phrase first came about, that there was some historical context that made it make sense, right? And so I came up with all kinds of elaborate ideas, like, you know, well, maybe back then people had these long leather straps and when you had to mount the horse, you could uh, wrap it around the knob thing on the saddle, and then on one end there's a loop, and you could stick your boot in it, and on the other end, you could kind of pull and use it as a step to hoist yourself up on the horse. That made sense, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I wondered, well, maybe it was an old device for the elderly, right? The older you get, the harder it is to lift your leg up. And so maybe people would make straps, and you could put one on the ground, step, put your boot in it, and then lift up with your legs to help get your foot up that, uh, that step into your home or whatever it is. Certainly, there had to be some sort of historical context that made this phrase make sense. Well, when I was looking at it this week, I was in for a surprise, because it referred to originally exactly what I thought it referred to, which is actually pulling yourself up by the little straps on the back of your shoes. Now, the one distinction, and it was always used in that way, the one distinction, though, is it started out as a sarcastic phrase, right? As you know that this is impossible, right? How can you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But then sometime over the course of history, it turned from a sarcastic stain to a pep talk. <laughs> right? In kind of that strange way that language takes on a life of its own, this phrase has completely flipped from how it is often used today. And I laugh because what a great picture of American culture, or probably human nature, right? Where, where you use this phrase that's intended to be sarcastic and someone thinks, hey, well maybe I should try that. Maybe that will work and suddenly it's supposed to encourage one another. Right? But I think it shows something about our human nature. Our pride so often refuses to acknowledge the help that we really need. We don't want to ask for help for others. We don't want to make ourselves vulnerable. We want to think, no, I can do this. Or maybe you've been hurt by others. Right? Someone was supposed to be there for you, and they weren't. And they left you, and you say, well, the only way I'm going to do it is by myself. Right? We, we, we maybe do all these impressive things in our life to try to distract people from that real emptiness in our hearts. And we know we can't fix ourselves no matter how hard we're trying. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. You can't fix yourself. You can't save yourself. As one pastor uh, has said it, cheer up. <laughs> you're a worse sinner than you realize, but you're more loved than you can imagine. We need someone to save us. That's what we're going to look at in our passage here. We're going to look at it kind of in three ways. First, Moses remembers, and then second, a new birth, and then third, justice and mercy. So first, Moses remembers. Now, the timeline of everything that's going on here is a little bit confusing. So if you remember last week, we looked at the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And in that, it happens, and so Pharaoh summons Moses, 
and offers to let them go, but he says, but you can't take your cattle with you, but the rest of you can go. Moses says, no, we all go. He refuses to negotiate. So Pharaoh loses his temper. He says, get out of my sight, right? The, The next time you see me, you'll die. And Pharaoh then responds, well, just as you say, Pharaoh, I will never appear before you again. And then that brings us to the next verse, 11.1, and it says, Now the Lord had said to Moses, and it's a little unclear, when is this happening? I think the NIV translation is helpful when it says, had said. Uh, This is technically called a a pluperfect, which basically just means it it, it refers to something that um, had occurred prior to a prior point in time, which is just a fancy way of saying like it's a past past, all right? And so likely what is happening in this little section that we are reading here is Moses is remembering, right? He's writing this as a past story, and then he's remembering something that God had told him even earlier, say in chapter 3 or chapter 7, when God is speaking to Moses and kind of gives him a preview of what is going to happen in the Exodus. And this exchange here with Pharaoh, suddenly it it triggers Moses' memory. And so what happens in verse 1 is kind of almost like a little flashback that Moses has to this previous encounter with God. And and so verse 4, perhaps when it says Moses says to Pharaoh, uh, he's speaking back to Pharaoh as we get out of that flashback, and it's like Moses is kind of walking out of Pharaoh's presence, and then he remembers it, and he turns around, And he says, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, just one more thing. At the darkest point of the night, and then he goes to explain the 10th plague as he's on his way out. It's maybe like that scene in a movie where suddenly at the end of the movie, the main character pieces together everything that's kind of been occurring throughout the story. And you get all these flashbacks of earlier scenes that suddenly make sense. Moses, I think, is starting to see how God is at work in doing his work of saving his people. Now, Moses didn't have an easy job, right? If you've been with us through this series, you'll remember Moses was often alone. He was hated by Pharaoh. More often than not, he was hated by the very people that he was trying to save. If you remember back in chapter 5, Moses uh, is telling Pharaoh that his job is to, you know, basically tell, you know, that Pharaoh needs to let the people go. Pharaoh doesn't like this, and so he starts putting more workload on them. And some of the foremen of the Israelites go to Pharaoh and say, look, we can't produce enough bricks that you're wanting us to produce. It's impossible. And Pharaoh says, well, hey, guess what? You guys are just lazy. That's the real problem. So now you not only have to produce the same amount of bricks, but you also, I'm not going to supply the straw anymore. You've got to go find that on your own. And so the foremen are just beat down, and they leave Pharaoh's presence, and they go find Moses, and they let Moses have it. They say, are you trying to kill us here? And Moses then goes and turns to God and cries out, ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble to these people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses is stuck in the middle. He's doing what God wants him to do because this is supposed to save his people, and yet all it's doing is making life harder for them. It was this bumpy road. And now, though, Near the end of this, it's like with these little flashbacks that we have in our passage, I think Moses is starting to see it all fit together. Oh, God is in charge of all this. And God doesn't need to tell Moses what's going to happen next, like he's done with every other plague. Moses knows what's next. He remembers what God has told him. He knows the next step in the plan. 
And so Moses walks out of Pharaoh's presence in that last meeting, and he turns around and says, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, there's one more thing coming. And this is a lesson, I think, in trusting God's timing. I mean, how much time do you spend wondering, why is God taking so long to answer my prayer requests? God, have you forgotten me? Are you ever going to do this thing to help me? Am I just going to be here on my own? Maybe I do have to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. And God promises us deliverance. He promises to take care of us. And we're like, all right, God, one step, get it done. But if you remember, as God said earlier to Moses and to Pharaoh, so often what could take God one step, he often does in ten or ten plagues to bring about his purposes. And that journey of trusting God in the process, it's like a roller coaster, right? More like a roller coaster than kind of a downward glide to the goal. With ups and downs, side to side, you feel like you're going to throw up at least once, and you question God. God, I thought you were going to fix this thing. But why does it feel like I'm just getting tossed all over the place? I thought you promised to redeem me. Frankly, my life is just harder now that you've showed up. I wish I'd never gotten my hopes up about this. And we feel that way. And we wonder, God, are you going to come true to your word? But I don't know about you, but I can look in my own story, my own life, and see a bunch of things where in the moment, God, why aren't you doing this? I'm praying so much for this. And God doesn't answer that prayer. Maybe I have to wait months, years. Maybe I never get that prayer answered. But more and more, the longer I live, I can look back at my life and I can see that waiting was better, that God's plan was better. He was worth it. And he was playing chess while I was still trying to do checkers. And the question for us today then is in those areas where your heart is so longing for him to show up, where you're praying, where you're asking, where you need him to come in, Will you trust his path and his timing? And I believe that it might not be until heaven, but there will come a time where you have that experience like Moses had here, and you suddenly get a glimpse of how God's plan is all coming together, and you realize, okay, that was better. You can't fix yourself. Right? Like if your life always worked out according to your timeline and your desires of whatever today's desires are, I can guarantee your life would be worse. You might achieve your goals that you think are so important to you, but in the meantime, you'll lose your soul. But God is in that slow soul work where he is working to change you from the deepest parts inside and then knead that change into your fingertips. But it takes time. And he's weaving a tapestry that is so much bigger than what you can imagine. And so will you trust him in the process? Because you can't figure it out on your own. You need to trust his guidance. And this brings us then to our second point, this new birth. So in verse 2, God says, this is the first month of your year. God is giving Israel an entire new calendar. Passover will become their New Year celebration. Now, today we kind of take it for granted that everyone pretty much celebrates the New Year on the same day, right? You can go online or or watch YouTube and watch everyone from Oceania and Tonga uh, welcome in the new year and then go from every time zone around the globe until it gets to ours. And everyone agrees, hey, this is the start of 2021 or whatever it might be. 
But that's not actually, it hasn't always been the case, right? Actually, for most of history, every society had their own calendar, their own way of tracking years. And most of the cultures back then, well, the new year tended to start at the end of the summer. And so the fall harvest marked the beginning of their new year. But God is resetting Israel's calendar so that now their new year will start in the spring. Passover takes place usually in March or April time frame. He says, the day that I redeemed you from Egypt is the start of new, your new year. It, it would be like having July 4th be New Year's Day, marking you know, the, the birth of our country with the new year. That's how it was for Israel. Now, what role did Israel have in setting their birthday? Well, nothing, right? God did it all. In the same way, what role did you have in setting your own birthday? Nothing, right? It was all God and, and your parents to some degree. Right? And this is such a simple point, but it is so easily overlooked. What role did Israel play in their own redemption? Right? Nothing. They were just along for the ride. What did they do to get this new birth? Well, in one sense, the only thing they did is that they were in need of a new birth. They were stuck enslaved, they couldn't save themselves, they couldn't break free, and they needed someone to come in and rescue them. You see, redemption is always a gift. It's not something that you can earn. It's something that God sees your need and he comes in to rescue you. It's God's work of freeing you from your oppressors, your sin. It's God's work of making a way where there is no way. God does the heavy lifting. Your redemption today is as much God's work as Israel's redemption was back then in this story. It's grace from the beginning to the end, and it marks a new birth in you, a new beginning, a new start where God has set you free so that you can serve him in all your life. You can't fix yourself. You can't give birth to yourself. You can give birth to yourself as easily as you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You need someone to do it. And when God does that, do you see that as a turning point in your life? A new birth, a new beginning, a transformation of an old way to looking at things to a new way, a new calendar by which you set your life and divide your time. And then this will bring us to our third point. We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time, justice and mercy. So verse 3 then goes into all these detailed instructions for the Passover meal. And by now, we've kind of gotten used to the typical sequence of each plague, right? They, they pretty much all follow a similar pattern where God tells Moses and Aaron, here's what you're to do. Moses and Aaron then go to Pharaoh. They do it, and it happens. Pharaoh then summons them, and either it tries to have the magicians replicate the miracle, or he tries to negotiate with them. Moses and Aaron say, nope, and the passage ends with saying Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let the people go just as God had said. Now, that same cycle takes place in the 10th plague, but what usually just takes half a chapter actually takes up two whole chapters to go through that entire cycle here. It, it takes up all of 11 and all of 12, and then even part of 13 is related as well. And the reason it takes so long is that sandwiched into the middle of this plague is all of this information about Passover, which shows us something key that there is an intricate link between this plague, the death of the firstborn, and the Passover, that you can't understand one without the other. 
So let's walk through some of the details of this section. It says each household is supposed to take a year-old male lamb. One of the things I learned actually when studying this was that word can actually refer to either a lamb or a goat. Right? So if you don't like lamb, well, hey, you can get a goat. Uh, either one of those is fine. And then there's these little details in there right, about sharing the lamb or goat. If maybe you have a small family and that's too much food because you don't want there to be a lot of leftovers, so invite another family to share the meal with. But make sure there's enough food so that everybody gets some, right? No one can say, well, I'm not going to eat any of this meat. You, you guys go ahead without me. And it says, the lamb should be one year old. So it will be fully grown, but it's still young. And it should be without blemish or defect. And these defects are, if you grew up on a farm, you, you're probably you know, more familiar with this than I am, right? Things like a, a spotted coat instead of a, a wholly white coat or, or maybe black coat. It could be something like a cleft palate or, or blindness or poor eyesight. All these things are somewhat common in, in sheep and goats. Now, I doubt when you guys eat a lamb chop, you can tell whether or not that lamb had a black coat or a white coat or a spotted coat. <laughs> I bet it all tastes the same, right? Or I bet if you ate a goat with a cleft palate, it would taste the same as a goat that didn't have a cleft palate, right? And most of us don't buy goat meat with the head still attached, right? It's all, we have no idea what that goat looked like. Now, perhaps you could tell, you know, marketers want us to believe that you can at least tell, well, whether the cow was grass-fed or not, right? Maybe that will make a difference. But many of the defects, we don't even know about them because it makes no difference in how the animal tastes. And yet God says, that's important. But it shows there's something more going on here than just a big barbecue. And this says, at twilight, you are to slaughter the animal. And it's the 14th day of the month, which Israel followed a lunar calendar, which meant it would be a full moon, so that they would have light for cooking and eating the meal, and most importantly, light for when they started walking out of Egypt. And then they're to take some of the blood and paint it on the doorposts on the entryway to their home. And God even gives cooking instructions. He says, don't boil the meat, which probably was one of the most common ways of cooking. You just slowly simmer the, the meat into a stew. But don't eat it raw either. But apparently, God likes the smell of a good barbecue. <laughs> but there's also practical reasons. Right? Like when you cook over a fire, there's less prep work. You don't have to chop up the meat. And there's less cleanup. You don't have as many dishes, which is important for if you're getting ready to head out right after dinner, like they were. And this is a theme that comes up several times. In verse 11, God says to eat it with your cloak in your belt, right? So tucked in, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. These are all things that you would do if you're getting ready to head out for a long hike, not sit down for a good family meal. And to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The unleavened bread makes sense because, well, hey, we, you don't have time to let the bread rise, so just cook it right away. And the bitter herbs, well, some commentators see an echo of Exodus 1.14, where it says, The Egyptians made the Israelites' lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. Right? They're getting a reminder of the life that they're about to leave. And then in verse 12, it says, On that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, this is where it gets real. Right? I mean, we read this and it makes us 
uncomfortable. It seems so harsh. We're going to dive into that more next week as we look at the rest of chapter 12. But the theme I want us to see right now is that you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. Let me ask you this. What saves the Israelites from losing their firstborn? Like, why are they spared and not the Egyptians? Well, God tells us in 12:13, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. So presumably, if an Israelite hadn't followed all these instructions for Passover, that Israelite's house would be struck by this plague just as an Egyptian's was. Right? Meaning that it wasn't something intrinsic in who the Israelites were that, that kept them from harm. There wasn't something that said, oh, you're, you're better than the, the, the Egyptians, so I'll, I'll, don't worry about it. You guys will be fine. This is actually a theme throughout the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 7. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and choose you because you are more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. He said, if you just looked out on paper, you were the least likely to get, get picked for the sports team. Right? You didn't have much attractive about you. It continues in Deuteronomy. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. It's saying it's all grace. God chooses to love these insignificant, unworthy people. And when he chooses to love them, it's a love that never quits. It never backs out, no matter the cost. God didn't spare these Israelite families because they were better than the Egyptians. In fact, it's safe to say that they deserve the same thing the Egyptians got. But then we can say, well, that doesn't seem fair, right? God's playing favorites. It's a double standard. He's being extra hard on the Egyptians. I mean, even the slave girl is mentioned. Like, how is she guilty, right? If anything, she probably hates Pharaoh as much as the Israelites do. But we have to go back to little clues in the text. A lamb or goat without blemish. It might not affect how that meat tastes, but it's something that God cares about. Because he wants a, a perfect animal, or as, a, as close to perfect as you could get. Because that means something to him. And the cooking over the fire, there were practical reasons, but it wasn't just because God wanted a barbecue. It's because it's a foreshadowing of the sacrifice. In this yet-to-be-constructed temple, there would be a 24-7 barbecue going on on that fire where animals would be sacrificed to the Lord. And the blood on the doorposts, it's not just a marker so God knows, oh, okay, that's one of my people, I'm not going to worry about them. And they could have used anything for, to, to represent that. God, in fact, would know that just because of who he is. The blood is representing something more. It shows a death has already occurred in this home. See, God isn't just overlooking his people's sins. He's saying, oh, don't worry about it. I like you guys. We'll just ignore this. Now, he's seen in some way the blood of the lamb, and he says, that death will count. And why? Probably many of you know where we're headed. It's what John the Baptist said in John 1, He sees Jesus, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who is taking away the sins of the world. Or Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. 
God didn't touch those houses because he just turns a blind eye to their sins. That's how so many Christians kind of, we, we wrestle with it. How can God forgive me, right? And you feel like, I've screwed up in so many ways, and God says you're forgiven, but it's kind of like God just threw a blanket over it, and you see this big pile of your sin, but it's got a pretty blanket on top, and you're like, my sin's still there. I don't feel forgiven. No, he passed over those homes because the sin in that home had already been judged on that lamb. That in some way, when God saw the blood on those wooden posts, he looked through that blood to the blood of his firstborn. And his firstborn's blood that would be dripping from other posts on the cross, where his son would be sacrificed as the unblemished Passover lamb. You see, what we have here is a picture of justice and mercy. To put it another way, that that on that night when God's adopted son, the Israelites who didn't deserve it, who will show shortly how screwed up they are, on that night when they were protected from God's judgment, God's true son wasn't. But he took his place among the homes of Egypt, as it were, and died there so that these unworthy people could be saved. This passage is, is a tough one. It pushes against our sense of fairness. And yet, what is so crucial for us to understand is that every single one of us, we're naturally like the Egyptians, like Pharaoh. We're no better than them. We are all guilty against fighting against God's rule in our life, of thinking, I can do it myself. I don't need to give up my life to follow you, God. I, I can try pretty good on my own. And our hearts may not be as hard as Pharaoh's are, but if you were to trace the root of why his heart turned out that way, you would see the root of the very same thing that's in every one of you and me. Sin. And every person that's ever been born on this planet. And if we just grown up in maybe a little bit different environment, different parents, a different country, had different things happen to us, our lives might look a lot more like Pharaoh's than it does ours right now. And that's where, but, but for some reason, God looks at you in the middle of your mess. And he says, I'm going to love you. But he doesn't look at, at, at people who, whose lives are clean. He says, I'm going to love you while you're a mess. I'm going to love you so much that when it comes time to deal with that pile of sin in your life and to reconcile the account for all the ways that you've screwed up, I'll love you so much that my son will take your place there. That his blood will cover your home. His blood will cover your heart. His blood will cover your life. The judgment will not touch you. 100% of it will fall on Jesus. And you have nothing to fear. There's only love now. You're free from your failures. You're free from your past. Jesus has said, it's mine. God's firstborn died so that we could live. So you can't fix yourself. You can't save yourself. But boy, we are so good at thinking, well, I'm going to try. I just need God to tweak a few things in, our, in my life, and you miss it at the root of your life. It is rotten. And you need God to change you from the deepest parts outward. And to kind of change the imagery a little bit. The best thing that we can do on our own is just keep chopping down the weeds 
mowing your lawn every day. And even though it might look good from the outside, the roots of sin are just as alive. You're just working really hard for making them too noticeable to others. It's why some of us, we're so busy doing all kinds of good things because we hope by, you know, prettying up the rest of our yard, we can get people not to see what's lying right beneath the surface, our muck, our yuck, our sin. That's why some of us, we feel so guilty all the time because you know what's under there, right? Others might not see it, but you know it and you live with the weight of it and you wonder, I can't even love myself. How could a perfect God then love me? Because you're convinced, I've got to bring something to the table if he wants me. But that's not how this God works. He's a perfect savior. And that means he isn't content just to bring all of his people into a new world where everyone just keeps their lawns manicured really well, but there are all kinds of weeds growing beneath the surface. He's a perfect savior. Meaning his work of redemption will only be done when he has brought his people into a new world that he has created where there are no more weeds. Where you and this world is so transformed from the inside out that they will never grow again. You never have to kill them. They never appear. A world where there's no more violence, no more pain, no more tears or death. All those things are gone. And not just gone, for the rest of the day, and then you look outside the next morning, and you're like, how did a dandelion grow six inches in 12 hours, right? But these things will be gone forever. And that is a work you can never do. But God can. And he offers to do it for you. Because he chooses to love undeserving sinners like you and me. I think that's why God says in verses 4 and 5, there must be enough meat for each person, right? You don't want a lot of leftovers, but everybody's got to eat. There's no one that can come to that table and say, well, I'm good. I'm full. You know, you guys take it. You need it more than me. Friends, if you don't feed from Christ, there is no hope for complete deliverance. The weeds will one day win. You want to be free? You want to have your life transformed from the inside out? You have to come and eat and drink of Christ. He is your hope. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do this in our lives. We so badly want it, God. We're sometimes afraid to admit how much we need it because we have to admit those deep things in our heart that we know are so dark. Father, help us to see that the way that you work is completely opposite from this entire world where the only thing you want us to bring to the table is our own sin, our own failure. And you promise to love us and never let us go. And Father, you have shown that and done that by sacrificing, by breaking your firstborn son so that we could be fed by his life and be turned into people that look like Jesus. We pray that you would do it. In Christ's name, amen.